Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with something a little different today, Liz Dolan and Larry Seal from the I Hate My Boss podcast. We're going to be answering some work-related, career-related questions here. Here at The Art of Charm, we may not have all the answers, but we certainly have some of the questions. Today on this special edition of Fan Mail Friday with the I Hate My Boss crew, those questions come from you. All right, let's cut right to it. Hey, Jordan and crew. I'm a 36-year-old director of operations for a franchise restaurant concept with nine units. I've been with the company since its beginning 15 years ago this past April. I need advice regarding loyalty versus personal goals. I started from the ground up as a cook. Within the first three months, I'd been promoted into management and have have rode a wave of growth and success. I've literally grown up with my company. I have grown from a work-hard, party-harder kid in my early 20s to married and providing for my two kids and in-laws. Everything positive in my life is from this job, but more specifically, my boss. He saw my potential and gave me an opportunity to rise to the occasion. We have had a boss-mentor-father-figure relationship, but lately the mentorship is non-existent. Over the last five years, my boss has been in a sell mode for the company. I'm fine with him selling the company. He's worked hard his whole life. He deserves to be rewarded for his efforts. He's nearing 70 years old. The two of us have always had an understanding that the end game would be a sale. His goal is to sell to a buyer that gives all of our employees an ability and opportunity to be part of a new company. This is notable, but I'm sure you're aware that the sale process is already very disruptive. Finding the right buyer caused us to go through this process half a dozen times. Currently, we are very close to a sale finally going through. I'm excited for this change because I think it will bring me new challenges. I have so much more to learn. This change in ownership will thrust me into a new dynamic. Either the new company will have new expectations or they may not need me at all. I've been assured that this is not the case, but I have to keep it as a possibility. I feel ready for either situation. Your podcast has been extremely helpful preparing myself for the next steps. Specifically, Pivot by Jenny Blake has been helpful. As close as we are to a done deal, I can't help but be skeptical it will happen. I've seen this movie before six times now. I would like your advice for what I should consider if this sale does not go through. I'm starting to accept that I've outgrown my boss and I've outgrown my coworkers. My dilemma is mostly emotional, slightly strategic, and a touch financial. I want to be a part of this company from start to finish. I also feel like it would be the highlight of my resume to neatly put a bow on my time with the company. Full disclosure, in the event of a sale, I am due a substantial bonus. On the other hand, I feel like the head start I had being a young operator is eroding every year that passes. I'm torn between loyalty and my own personal goals. Thank you for all you do. Please help. What do you think? Wow. Well, there's it's it's interesting. I think the meat of this comes at the end when he says, I think I've outgrown my boss and my coworkers. I think his gut is telling him he knows the end of the chapter is coming and indeed uh, a sale to new owners is potentially a perfect place to put uh, a bow on the package. And it's great that he feels loyal. It's great that he's been working with the boss to kind of move in that direction. I actually think he ought to continue that. He ought to set that new company up for success. And who knows, there could be a very cool role, but his gut's telling him that there's opportunity outside of here. And let's face it, in general, showing you can be successful in more than one company is incredibly valuable valuable on a resume. So I'd say to him, get ready to turn the page, my friend. So you're saying, Larry, even with the new owners, like you shouldn't necessarily count on sticking around. I would say that, and it would be great if this works out for him and you can stay through the end of the sale, good professionally and financially because of the bonus. So got it. However, 
I'm really concerned that a sale process has been repeated so many times without a positive result. You need a plan B here. Uh, he should be looking for another job already, probably. Could he possibly get the financing to be the buyer himself? Maybe. But number one, I would say do not be passive about waiting for this to end and have a bow tied around it. There is no guarantee that is going to happen. Right, I suppose, because he could, he could wait and wait and wait and wait, and they could end up with a raw sale deal or even exactly. like a fire sale because the boss says, I'm 73, I got this is broken, that's broken, my grandkids are moving out of state, I'm going to sell on terrible terms that basically all you are getting fired, sorry, I'm old, bye. Exactly. And that happens a lot, and his boss isn't necessarily going to tell him, like, okay, well, the next time we try, that's going to happen. So I think that the my antenna was up to see that to hear that he's seen this movie before. So something else has to be happening for him on the outside. Yeah, this makes sense to me. I think you've been loyal. That's great. Leaving now great. with plenty yeah. of notice, that's not really unfair, right? That's Those are the rules not of the game. Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. No, he's been he's been loyal. As you've said, Jordan, loyalty is fantastic, but you also have to be loyal to yourself. And frankly, the fact that the boss is selling this company means he's moving on. So it's time for you to think about your own moving on. It seems like this is something where, well, first of all, the best time to find a job is when you already have one. Right. So you don't want to be in a position where every single person in your company you know, it hits the news and everyone's looking for a place to scramble and you're last in line because you're youngest. That could, you know, there's a lot of advantage to seeking out another position while you essentially have as much time as you need because you're still employed. Exactly. And it feels like right now he's continuing to do the same thing he's been doing. Not to say he's coasting, but he's not in a learning, getting promoted kind of mode at all. So sticking around just because there's more you can do, well, he's past that point. He has outgrown that. So no future employer is really going to care that much that he stuck around for the sale, I don't think. I think it's that could look interesting and good. And it's certainly a great story to tell, but it doesn't make him any more qualified for his next job. All right. Next, we have Positive Paula. She says, hey, Jordan and the Art of Charm crew. And of course, the I Hate My Boss crew. In my office, I typically take breaks and lunches with three friends. I've worked with these same coworkers for close to seven years and have been best friends with one of them for 11 years. They are awesome to spend time with outside of work. However, Inside the office, they are very negative about our workplace and use our break and lunchtime to vent about changes within their department. I find my role in the company to be rewarding and don't want to be associated with the constant criticizing of the company. I have tried a multitude of ways to change the format of our conversations for the times when we are at work, such as deflecting to another subject, defending the position of whomever they are attacking at the moment, including others in our conversations, walked away, directly asked them to stop. This may work for a few moments, but typically doesn't hold throughout. One example will be that I will initiate with questions about what is going on in their personal lives or mention something we would find amusing to try and get us moving towards a pleasant conversation in the beginning. Then, immediately after responding, they will launch directly into a diatribe about what is wrong with the job. I do find that when one of the group is absent, doesn't matter who, it changes the dynamic and the remainder of us have a regular chat during those days. 
There was a time when I would be sympathetic and offer advice on what I thought was the best option to alleviate their woes, but that time is over, as they don't seem to accept that the venting isn't helping, nor do they want to bring the complaints to those that can make changes. They also don't seem interested in changing jobs themselves. There are other people with whom I could take my breaks and lunches with, and I do on occasion, but I really don't want to completely ditch my friends at work because that may affect our personal interactions outside of work. Any advice on how to get them not to vent when I'm around? Positive Paula. Okay, Paula. You know, the hard, sad news is sometimes we just outgrow our circle of friends at work. It happens in real life, and it can be pretty painful in the workplace, too. It's hanging around with a bunch of negaholics. I just I've that totally brings me down. It means you're going to be less good at your job. It means you start to get a reputation as being one of those negaholics, which clearly you don't want to be. You have tried to take active steps telling your friends that's not what you want to talk about. And they have not exactly responded to the careful coaching you are giving them. So other than trying to distance yourself, I don't think you're going to be able to change their behavior. If you've tried and you've asked, I don't think that's what you can expect. So you need to figure out what you really need to do for you. Larry, I know you've broken it down even more. Well, first of all, I'm in love with the phrase negaholics. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's amazing. That's getting that's stolen a, for sure on my end yeah, as well. Okay, yeah, good. I, I was going to say I totally took that as well, Jordan. So so look, I, it sounds like she actually has been – she's done a couple of really good obvious things, right, in terms of trying to change the subject, offering some advice. The reality is complaining about somebody who's not there, you know, some outside force is one of the ways people bond. Yeah. It's not mm-hmm. one of the best aspects of how people bond, but it absolutely happens. Now, what's interesting to me is she notes that it changes, that that, 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 that doesn't happen as much when one of the people is gone. And so that actually – I mean the fact that she noticed that is really interesting. And what I would do is I'd take the opportunity the next time that happens – Just wait. See if it happens again, which it probably will, and I'd make the note to the group. Hey, do do you folks notice that when one of us isn't here, the conversation seems to change and we talk about different things rather than just kind of complaining about, about work? Do you notice that? Why do you think it is? And does anybody else kind of prefer the latter? Versus the former, I think it's a great way to dig in, and it would be interesting to see why that's happening. You know, I can, I can assume that this will work better than it did in my mind right now. Which was, what? Do you know why that's happening? Yeah, because freaking John's not here. God, John is awful. <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah. John is terrible. Let's talk about John for a minute. <laughs> well, that that is that is one of those common ones, right? Where you know, it's like, man, I don't want to be the one who's not in the room because I know they're going to bag on me. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. yeah. If it's so, the same person that brings them down the whole time, right, then you just have to get rid of that person. But Jordan, do you think it's even reasonable to change a group dynamic like this? I think it's hard when groups of friends sort of grow up in a certain way. It's like you're playing that role for each other. You're the venting group. And all of a sudden say, well, no, let's not do that anymore. Let's be different together is incredibly hard to pull off. This is an extremely tough dynamic to change. And I know this just from my personal life. I used to have friends where all we did was complain. And I met my wife and she was like, hey, you know, Whenever you're around these people, you're so negative. I can't stand it. 
It's going to be a deal breaker if you can't change. And so I had to do a couple of things. I had to limit my contact with those people. And when I was around them, I had to constantly change the subject. And what I have found was as exhausting as it is to constantly change the subject, it does work at least in one-to-one or two-to-one situations because it's yes, it's tiring because you constantly have to redirect. But when people get the idea that you will not suffer their their crap mm-hmm. when they're venting, yeah. it's more tiring for them because they have to put more and more energy into the venting itself to try to enroll you in what they're doing. So if you sort of refuse to do it by either remaining silent and or redirecting the conversation, some people will take the hint. There may be some that won't, and you might be at a critical mass where if you don't participate, the other three or four people can do it without you, in which case I would say bluntly, hey, you guys complain a lot at work, and it's, you know, I like what I do here. It kind of drags me down. Love you guys. Let's get dinner tonight, but I just can't deal with it. And they might really be annoyed by that at first, but they might also look Mm -hmm. in the mirror and go, yeah, you know, all we do is piss and wine. It's getting old. You know, Jordan, I've got a group of friends similar to you that have been friends since high school, and we just have a pattern with each other in terms of how we talk about what's in the news, what's on sports at our at our local college where we went, and it just stays in a very narrow world. And I remember I was probably in my mid to late 30s, and I didn't live in that town anymore, and I would go back home and we would get together, and I would start talking about different things and they would laugh at me and say, oh, God, Larry's here and he's going to make us talk about serious stuff or something other than just what we normally talked about. But they're interesting guys and they're bright guys and there was good conversation to be had. But unless somebody pulled them out of the rut we were in and talked about something different, it wouldn't happen. And I'm sure when I left, they A, talked about me and then B, went back to the same conversation they always had. You have to kind of not care if they talk about you. So if you're going to make the break, make the break. Yeah, I had a bunch of former colleagues at a former company, that, and we'd all since left the company. But when we got together socially, for whatever reason, they all wanted to talk about how totally screwed up the company was now that we were all gone. And it was just not that interesting to sit down and kind of rehash all of that and sort of gossip from a place that none of us worked anymore. It was like really, really not interesting. And I was not successful, despite trying to redirect a lot. I swear to you, Jordan, I try to change the subject a lot. But some people, they're like, that's what they want to talk about when they're together. So that's what it's a hard thing for. What's her name? Polly. It's a hard thing for Polly to pull off here. I agree. You know, I think that uh, it's kind of like being married and still complaining nonstop about your ex-boyfriend. It's just pathetic, right? At some level, if you've already got a new job. Exactly. And and Paula, I just called you Polly. So I'll just apologize for that. (laughs) Paula. You're going to apologize. Yeah. But I'm. Next up, we have Should I Stay or Should I Go? Dear Art of Charm, and I Hate My Boss. This summer, I am home from college and working an internship at a biomedical company. I want to be a doctor, and when I initially applied for this internship, I was under the impression that I would have more access to a side of the medical community, specifically surgical and biomedical supply, that most pre-med students do not have the chance to learn about. A little about me, I'm 20 years old, I'm a university student, double majoring in biochemistry, cell molecular biology, and chemistry with a pre-med focus. I have a 3.94 GPA, wow, congratulations, a full tuition academic scholarship to my institution, and I have my EMT certification, which I use to work on an ambulance about 40 hours a week during the school year. Dang. 
I also powerlift and have a competition near the end of July. I'm not a slacker, obviously, and I am currently studying for the MCAT, but I've found myself in a bit of a personal conundrum regarding my internship. When I started the internship, I was essentially given a list of tasks that consisted of the grunt work that other company employees had not had time to do. These tasks include filing, cleaning, and organizing. Typical intern stuff, but essentially mindless activities that don't challenge me or teach me much outside of what I know. Another part of the internship was supposed to include time setting up cadavers for surgeons to practice on, though I've been working nearly six weeks and there has yet to be any guarantee that I will touch a cadaver. The pay is good, but I am not a college student who is hurting for money, and my parents are footing the bill for food, housing, and a few other things. At the moment, I honestly want to study, train in the gym, spend time with my family, see a few of my friends while I'm home, and maybe even start writing a book or picking up a skill I want to use, but I find I'm so exhausted that I don't have the motivation to go see people after the work week is done or do most anything outside of powerlifting training. I'm not learning anything at my work. Well, not anything besides the material I gleaned from the podcast I've been racing through while at work. I guess I was under the impression an internship was supposed to teach me something, yet I have hardly learned anything new. I have about four weeks left of this internship. It's exhausting to think of the time ahead, which is why I ask you for advice. Should I jump ship on the internship and enjoy the rest of my summer doing more fulfilling activities? Should I ask my supervisors for more challenging work? Should I stick around and tough it out for the sake of just earning a paycheck and a thing to stick on my resume? I'm a little frustrated. Thank you for listening and thank you for all that you do. Sincerely, should I stay or should I go? What do you think? Wow, I think we have a massive overachiever here. Yes, for sure. Makes me makes me exhausted listening to that. Sheesh. Look, at the end of the day, companies have internships because there's stuff that they need to get done. And frankly, I think most internships get represented to be a bit more than they actually turn out to be. There's often a lot of grunt work in those. So I mean, very specifically, should they speak up about the experience that they want to get? Sure. Be really clear about one or two things that they would like to learn or get some experience with in the last four months. Absolutely, they can do that because clearly if they leave it up to the company, they haven't really chosen things that they're going to be thrilled about. Do I think that they have a great chance of actually shifting things dramatically? I can't say I do. And I'd say, you know, internships are always a crapshoot. The good news is that they're often short. You learn what you can and you move on. And the fact that you're thinking of jumping ship when you only have four weeks left, and that time period is described as exhausting, that is a total red flag to me. You know, clearly, you're right. You're not a slacker. You're a very hard worker, but you don't just want to put your head down and deliver on a commitment you made. And if you're not interested in the paycheck, well, lucky you. You're in a very privileged position then. I think we'd all love to not need the money and spend time with family, friends, and in the gym. So what I would recommend is that you live up to your commitment, but also ask your employer constructively if you can contribute at a higher level during the final four weeks. If the answer is yes, great. If the answer is no, then you've actually learned something else, which is work can be hard, time-consuming, and sometimes boring. Welcome to the real world. Yeah. I also think that the bonus from this is, look, you're going to get a letter of recommendation, as you as you sort of stated, and you might get a chance to figure out exactly what you don't want, which I know sounds like a crappy consolation prize, but is actually quite necessary because now you've seen what it's like to work inside those companies. You know what other people are doing day to day. Do you want their job? 
do you see that there's a lot of other things that are in, involved in this job that you really don't like? You're doing a lot of it now. You get a little bit of free time to listen to shows and do some powerlifting. It's really, I know it sounds like a lot of time because it's a month and you don't have that much time, but I think the consequences of, of uprooting yourself from an internship in the middle of the summer may outweigh the four weeks of extra time to to do even the amazing things that you're already doing. You're not going to finish a book in a month, for example, so it may just be worth keeping your head down and doing it, which is something I don't often recommend, but in this case, I think it may actually be the best. I mean, it's it's not a huge period of time, and and it's not – I'd encourage them to think about it. it's not just what you're doing or what you're learning, but it's how you're doing it. How, what kind of attitude do you have when you're not doing fun stuff? What kind of attitude do you have when you're doing work that probably doesn't challenge you very much? That matters too because, frankly, these are going to be potential employers in the future. Um, so so it's, there's, a, there's another way to learn and demonstrate value here. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Next up is Confused Daughter from Indonesia. Hi, Jordan and company. After I earned my master's degree last year, I decided to work on a small company with my dad. Even though the business isn't related to my major, it allows us to support my older sister better, who's divorced and unemployed due to her son's medical conditions. Work is fun and I'm learning many things, but lately I keep feeling agitated because my dad can't seem to prioritize the business and he complains all the time. This is a running theme today, I think. Hence, business problems accumulated. I understand his confusion, his worry, and divided attention of work and his grandson, but the sustainability of this company greatly affects our family. There are some external factors that push us to take major decisions with the company so that it will take a better path, but my dad can't seem to put his priorities in order. Telling him to put less attention and time towards my sick nephew sounds wrong as well, considering his inherent medical problems. How can I support my dad and feel better at work? Or simply, how can I cope with an unmotivated boss? He's been a wonderful dad throughout 24 years that I've known him, and now I need him to be a great boss. I tried to present him with data analysis options we can take, but communication hasn't really worked out. It's hard to stay motivated at work. It's a small company, so I can't rely on my employees on this. Deep in my heart, I started to reevaluate my career options. If we meet the road's end, I would probably rely on my master's degree and get a job, or focus to become a professional at art and design, a hobby that I currently enjoy. As nice as those sound, are these options just my justification for escapism? Because I know with my current skill at this starting point, these options probably won't give me much chance to support my sister financially. With love from Indonesia, confused daughter. What do you make of this? This is a tough spot because you got the family, you've got the right. very reasonable concerns on all sides, but she's really sacrificing herself currently from the sound of it. Right. That's what it sounds like. Family businesses can be emotionally so fraught for a number of reasons. First of all, you work for your dad. That's tricky in the best of circumstances. But when I see that you write, he's been a wonderful dad throughout 24 years. I've known him. And now I need him to be a great boss. I just want to say, you know, he'll always be your dad. Don't let the fact that he's temporarily your boss ruin the fact that he's your dad. And it could be that that he's your it could be that working for him actually does destroy your father daughter relationship and that is never a good thing second the family business may or may not be the best use of your skills and training and it feels like you're starting to recognize that third other members of your family depend on this business so you feel obliged to help as much as you can and that is a lot of emotional pressure and financial pressure uh, but it could be that if you were out in a different kind of career, you can actually contribute 
financially and emotionally to your family better than necessarily being part of the family business. But also when you sign your letter with love from Indonesia, the fourth thing I'd say is that there's probably a very strong cultural pressure for you to stay in the family business no matter what. And I think we're all super sensitive to what that might mean in your culture. So it's hard to say, like in a different situation, I might say, okay, you're only 24. Make, explain to your dad. I'm sure he'll understand. You can probably have a better career somewhere else. And you just have to, you know, find the best way to disengage. But I know that might be very, very difficult in this case. Yeah, this is this is a this is a tough one because of the familial the familial interests here as well as the professional ones. And look, in a in a regular business circumstance where you've got a business partner, do you want to have a direct conversation? Of course you do. And that can be difficult enough, let alone when you've got the father-daughter dynamic. And so what I heard her saying was, I'm trying to present data. I'm kind of trying to talk him into and logically get him to understand my concerns. That hasn't worked yet. I'm assuming she did that well. So let's try another approach. Often when you're trying to get people to change their mind or hear you when they're not hearing you, you need to actually stop and ask questions, not make statements. And so she could say, like, look, dad – this and this are going really well about the business, um, but we've got some problems and I need your help to solve them. I'm finding it harder and harder to get your time and your focus, which, by the way, I get because you're a great dad and you're a great grandfather and you're trying to balance family and work. How can I work with you to address some of these things that are in front of us? What are our options? I think really opening that up and having a conversation with him as opposed to trying to convince him is going to allow dad to engage his brain a little differently. He's going to feel heard about the pulling that he feels. And it's also going to, you know, he parents want to help kids often. So if she presents it as a problem I need your help with, I think she's got a good chance of getting dad to see this a bit differently. Do you think that her dad probably knows all this stuff and just is having emotional issues getting it together? Yeah. feels to me like dad is burnt out. So the one alternative here is that she takes over the business. You know, that's not impossible or that they could agree on a plan to get her in a position to take over the business because it feels to me like he really is distracted for a lot of good reasons by other things that are going on in the family. So it could be that now's the time to put together the transition plan. I, I, I agree with both of you. I think he is distracted in getting him to, quote, hear this differently is going to be the key. He he sees all of it. He's just stuck and or exhausted. Here's another problem is she says, we can't count. I can't rely on my employees on this, which is another drawback with a family business where it's not like you have, you know, a couple of people waiting in the wings to take over. If there's an understanding that this business will always be in the family and a family member is going to take over, that puts more pressure on her. The moral of the story here for me is this is going to be tough either way because it's your dad. There's just kind of yeah. no yeah. getting around it, right? You're gonna... And as, that, as, as Liz said, that's the most important relationship you've got here. So make sure you leave that well. You know, my family was always in a family business. My father and his brother worked for their their father, my grandfather, in a business that was started in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in the middle of the Depression, and it was a little steel mill. And then when my grandfather was ready to, like, have his two sons take over, 
My father really had no interest in doing that. He just wanted to be a writer, Jordan. He wanted to, you know, he really had more artistic goals for himself. But he did it, and he spent 40 years in the family business. And uh, working with his brother worked out fine. But then you know what he did the moment he retired? He started writing. He just So it was a dream deferred for him. Yes, he did get around to it sooner or later. But because of the obligation he felt to his father, for lots of really wonderful reasons, he spent, you know, 40 years in a steel mill when he would rather have been writing. Makes him a very good son. And he was a good dad. So just it's, it can work out. I think just to make this question and situation even tougher— I think Indonesia probably has an even stronger family culture than maybe we do here in the States. So there might For not sure. even be as much freedom to tell your dad what you think. Not not freedom, but he he might be thinking, yeah, it's a bummer. You're not going anywhere, though. You're staying here. Sure. So that's also very possible. And I, I don't mean I don't mean that in any disparaging way. I think that same thing probably happens in the United States. I think if you if you had a Greek restaurant, you know, from Detroit, we got Greek restaurants everywhere. I remember there were Greek girls that worked every weekend at the restaurant. And we said, can't you just come hang out with us this weekend? And she's like, looked at us like we asked her to take her head off and put it on the table. You want me to ask my dad for the weekend off? Get the mm-hmm. hell out of here. Give me a no, break. Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> So there's also that dynamic that maybe we didn't even have time to get into here. That's a whole different can of worms. All right. Next up, Bean Counter Guy. Hi, Jordan and the Art of Charm crew. Love the show. Finding it a massive help. I work at one of those big four accounting firms. I've also recently moved countries from South Africa to Ireland. Very cool. And so I'm adjusted to both a new work culture as well as a load of new information and processes in my job. The place where I work is super hierarchical, and I report to a boss who is a great person and a technical guru at what he does. However, I am struggling to build up a friendly relationship and rapport with this person. I have very little opportunity to chat to him about anything other than the immediate task at hand during the day, and because of this, it's difficult to build a bridge with him. There's also a very obvious generational gap between us. He's also the person who will decide whether I stay on long-term at this company, and so because of this, I'm finding that I generally get really nervous whenever I do have a chance to speak to him at any event. I'm lacking confidence when I approach him, and this is coming across in my discussions with him, which reflects poorly on my performance. It turns into this downward spiral. Would you have any recommendations as to what I can do to forget my nerves when I'm trying to engage in a conversation with this person? A lot is riding on me forming a good working relationship with my boss. Kind regards, Bean Counter. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, he he's being he's being very wise by recognizing that the relationship with his boss is critical. It is always is. I also hear a lot of angst in his in his words about, oh my gosh, this is absolutely critical, and we've we've got to bond together, and it, it can be very difficult to do that with very different backgrounds and circumstances. The thing I would tell him to chill out on is. There are a lot of people who don't who need way less in a work relationship to feel trust and respect. Way less. And my sense is his bar is a lot higher than his boss's is. I pretty much guarantee you your boss is not sitting around thinking about his relationship with you nearly as much <laughs> as you are. So no. true. Right? So so I think I think that's that's number one. That 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 the angst you're feeling is likely not echoed on the other side of that. And the other side of this is, is look, you can 
you can ask for guidance and mentorship. You can ask for, right, this person is a technical guru. That means you've got a wonderful opportunity to not only pick this person's brain, but also allow them to feel helpful by passing on their wisdom and knowledge. So I'd find some things that are interesting to you where you feel like you'd like to learn more and say, hey, look, you've probably done this a ton. I don't really get it. Or I'd love your advice about how you approach X, Y, Z. That person's going to take them through it. That creates connection. Right. You know, it's so interesting to me how many questions we get on I Hate My Boss, and obviously you get them too, on The Art of Charm, that really come down to people being able to present themselves and their work with confidence. Just simple confidence building. And I know you do a lot of training in that area, Jordan, so you must see that all the time. Like, they know what they're doing, they're good at their job, but they just sort of start quivering like a bowl of jelly when they have to talk to someone who is their superior. So, and I agree with you, Larry, like this is not a boss who's interested in personal sharing and caring. So you try to engage someone in chit chat, but you do the chit and they've got no chat, right? (laughs) So my strategy in the past with bosses like this is to really try to be ready when you see them to tell a specific story about something that you've worked on or something that you want to ask them about. Don't feel like, oh, any day now we're going to get all warmed up and we're going to start, you know, let's talk about the baseball season or what you did over the weekend. That is not going to happen. Just try to, like, take a couple of deep breaths and think to yourself, next time I bump into him, here's something I want to either ask him or tell him and leave it at that. I agree with you there, especially in the sort of United Kingdom work culture. I agree with everything you said so far, and I'm going to cap it with this. When I worked in London at a law firm, one day on a Friday, it was a long weekend, I was taking the elevator down from the, whatever, 14th floor to the ground floor, and there was a very high-level senior partner in the elevator with me, and of course he's is always wearing a very sharp three-piece suit no matter what time and what day it is because he's an old English lawyer. Very Savile Row. Yes. And he says, oh, good afternoon or something like this, right? And I said, oh, (laughs) hey, how you doing? Heading out? And he says, "Uh, yes, I'm heading home. And I said, oh, got anything planned for the weekend? Uh, Well, I have a fishing cabin. I'll probably go there. Great. Well, have a great time. We'll see you on Monday. On Monday... I was called into my manager, my partner, my supervising partner's office immediately, and he said, did you have a conversation with, uh, I, I don't remember his name, Mr. Griffiths on the elevator on the way down? Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, this is a weird way to get complimented on my social skills, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> and, so much for the art of charm. Yeah. This is, you know, years and years ago, before, of course, before AOC in my past life as an attorney, and he said, well, this is hard to explain because you're American, but- Mr. Griffiths has worked very hard to get where he is. Very, very hard. And I said, yeah, uh, okay. And they Mm -hmm. said, so when people talk to him in a way that isn't the same way that he would be expecting someone to talk with him, it really makes him feel a little bit uncomfortable. And that, to me, was British speak for how dare you talk informally with this guy who is way up (laughs) Mm -hmm. food chain. Just (laughs) shut up and stare at the buttons and go home and, you know, nobody cares what you're doing this weekend and you shouldn't care what he's doing this weekend. And that, for me, as an American, was so foreign because 
I was very tempted with Bean Counter to give him these little rapport building tips and how to not be so outcome dependent when he talks to his boss and things right. like that. And I think that outcome dependency and getting the nerves under control are very important. We talk about those things in the toolbox yeah. episodes here. But I think also that typical American advice about being comfortable by acting as if might actually backfire in a case like yeah, this. Yeah, that's interesting. Right? That's good we point. are so damn friendly. <laughs> And some countries that just does not play well or no. in some work situations. We feel like everyone's going to want to talk to us. Why do you bloody yank smile all the time? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And to me, I'm still not totally sure what I did wrong there. I mean, I get it at an academic level that right. he felt somehow disrespected that I had the gall to actually speak with him as if I were also a human being. However, you know, look. Obviously, that was something that everybody else at that firm understood. For me, if you sat, if you were in New York and you were leaving, and it was five, six, seven p.m., and there was a managing partner in that elevator, and you said, uh, "I'm going to stare at my BlackBerry and not say hello to you," you wouldn't be called into anybody's office, but they would be thinking, "That's a weird associate. How wouldn't he not say hi? He right. knows who I am. What a weird right. kid." That's right. what that would have ended up like, right? He would have been almost offended that I didn't ask him. Just anything. the opposite. So, yeah. It kind of reminds me of the Steve Harvey memo that came out uh, early, <laughs> earlier this spring to his staff about do not make eye contact. Do not stand outside my office. Do not ask me questions. Do not ask me to be funny. He just wanted to lay out his rules. I do not want to chit chat with the staff. That's not my job. And it sounds like your Mr. Griffiths just assumed that you would have understood that. Yeah, yeah, he was pretty surprised that I didn't. And I think it's, you know, both a cultural thing and that I was a first-year associate. I got to admit, though, side note, I was surprised that Steve Harvey did that. That just shows he must have a very strong boundary of separation between his personal and his professional life or his professional performance life and his working life. Those boundaries are yeah. very clear with him, obviously. Yep. Which is not a bad thing. No. Uh, yeah, we discussed it on I Hate My Boss, and it's like, well, now at least you know what his rules are. That's helpful. Last but not least, Anonymous, very creative. Hi, Jordan. Let me get right to the situation. I appreciate that. I've held my job for five and a half years, and my role has been consistent over those years. I am restless in this position, even though from the outside, it would appear this job is a good fit for me. My issue is not so much with the company. In fact, it is an iconic brand with great values that emphasizes that everyone should be a leader. Unfortunately, I am reporting to an individual that does not take the leadership philosophy with any seriousness. This person's vision seems to be his retirement and not rocking the boat until he gets there. The idea of him sending me to training to further my development is often rejected, and any corporate initiative to do so is seen as a nuisance to this person. Coupled with his lack of trust in our team, I often feel unengaged in my work, and I think I'm only contributing about 60% of myself. I'm conflicted because I do like working for this company, and I align very well with its values. However, the company is small, and there are limited opportunities for me to make an internal move, although at some point, the opportunity may present itself. Right now, though, I don't see when this might happen. My alternative option is to leave this job and leave this company. I feel I'm staying for the sake of the company, but certainly not for my current position nor for my boss. My concern is that if I depart the company, my next company culture will not be as appealing to me, and perhaps my new boss will not have any better leadership qualities. In the meantime, I'm making an effort to contribute and stay relevant by helping and advising acquaintances and friends in their business endeavors and exploring my own business opportunities on the side. I'm reaching out to you in hopes that any outside person can clarify if my options are valid or if there are alternatives. Also, are my concerns real or just fear of the unknown? Your perspective would be very much appreciated. Thank you, Anonymous. This is a toughie because, of course, 
the obvious solution is ah, move inside the company, internal move. But he really just sure. right off the bat said, well, it's a pretty small place. Not sure it can happen. Jordan, what do you think about when you hear somebody make an observation like they did at the end of that, which is, I don't know, maybe this is not real and I'm just making it up. It's my anxiety. What does that make you think? For me, my gut usually says, well, that means that you already think it's probably that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. You know, right. it, it really just shows a, a level of anxiety with the level of decision. And also, it could be because let, let's assume it, it's one of two things, right? Let's assume, yeah, it's just all in your head and every job is like this. Okay, well, maybe you don't belong there, right? If that's really what you feel. And let's right. say, actually, this is true. This person really is stifling your career. And then I come to the same conclusion. Well, obviously, you really don't belong there. So all roads lead to, I forget what this expression is, right? All roads lead to whatever. But Wrong, it seems like the I same <laughs> conclusion here is that you need to get out of there. If he's stifling your career... That's bad. If, if it's all in your imagination and you feel like he's stifling your career, well, that's just as bad. Yeah, I'd also say, though, be careful not to assume you know too much about what your boss's long-range plan are. Yeah, it's, it's really bad. If you're working for someone who's coasting to the finish line, that is super frustrating. But we had an episode of I Hate My Boss last month where somebody was told by their boss, I'm going to be around for the next five years. And so he left the department, took a sideways move into an, another department so that he would have some upward mobility. And four months later, the boss quit. Like you, So you can't ever really know uh, that that's actually what's happening. I agree with you, Jordan, that this is a person who probably needs to move on. He seems to be coming at saying that or concluding that in a lot of different ways. I kind of like the idea that he's got a side hustle going on or he's starting to use his energy that way because that gets someone out into the world and engaged with new people. And that could really be good while he's trying to figure out things. But, Larry, I know your concern was the more he's working on the outside, the less attention he's paying to his performance on the inside. Right. Because what's I mean, what's always going to be good is putting 100 percent of your energy and attention into you Right. And moving either being successful right here, which is always good and helping drive me towards what it is I want to be doing a year from now, 18 months from now. What I would not do is kind of say, well, there's going to be transition. I think my boss is going to move on. I think so. I'm going to kind of coast, have a nice summer for sure. If the, a new boss does come in, they're not going to look very favorably at somebody who's coasting a 70% effort. Um, that's not going to help <laughs> mm -hmm. you get where you want to be. And and it is scary to make a change to do something that you don't know something about. I mean, all too sadly, most people make changes when the pain of continuing what they're doing outweighs the fear of the unknown, right? The change. That's so true. Yeah. It's, it mm -hmm. happens all the time. It's just a truth of, of humanity. And, it, and it's sad that people don't feel like they can be more proactive. Even in this case, I read it as they do know something, something is up. It doesn't feel right to them. Put your energy into directing yourself in a place where you can grow and develop because it's clearly critical to you. I love that. Yeah, I think it really is all roads lead to Rome, which I finally remembered. All roads lead to Rome. It's you got to you got to figure this out because even again, just even if it is in your own head, it's a problem. And you're right. I love your right. point about, well, you know, I could just relax and then this is going to because you're right. If I came in there and I was the new boss, I'd go, who's the dead weight? Exactly. 
Oh. oh, Larry's Larry's been cruising. Yeah. Oh, it's because we had a bad boss who was only thinking about retirement. Great. I need to make an example out of somebody. So lucky you, right? So <laughs> sorry, buddy. Yeah. So I, I love your point on there. It's really you do have to think about all these little factors. This is why I don't have a real job. Everybody, come on. There's so much <laughs> yeah. going on. You learned the hard way. <laughs> yeah, I learned the hard way. I learned in that elevator in 2006. <laughs> I wasn't cut out for this crap. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, and thank you, Liz, so much for this. I hate my boss. You know, it's not always about hating your boss, but there's there's plenty of good stuff in there. Catchy title. I did. I did. I'm so grateful that you were able to come on and handle some of these. We might have to do this again soon. Our pleasure. We would love to do it some more. And remember, our job is to stamp out bad bossery. So that's why we're here. Thanks, Jordan. We appreciate it. And you're right. I mean, the title is catchy. But at the end of the day, we want it. We want people to be really satisfied in their work because we spend so much time there. So hopefully we're helping. Hope you all enjoyed that. Don't forget, you can email us Friday at The Art of Charm to get your questions answered on the air. I keep everyone anonymous, and so you can either make up your own funny name or we can do it. If you got feedback for the show, we're fans of strong opinions loosely held. We'd love to argue like we are right, but also listen like we're wrong. So don't be shy to hit us up over here. And if you've got your own advice for some of the people you've heard from today, let us know. If it's something that can help everyone, I might read it on the show. A link to the show notes for this episode can be found at theartofcharm.com slash fmfboss. That's fmfboss for this special edition of Fan Mail Friday. And if you're listening to AOC in the Overcast player for iPhone, please click on that little star icon. It helps our listings and introduces new people to the show. No shout-outs today because I forgot. Not that there's nobody to shout-out to, but I, how about this? The whole AOC family trying to up their career game. Much appreciated. But basically, yeah, I just forgot to add them to the list. So it goes, folks. So it goes. Are you in a strange land listening to my familiar voice? If so, hit me up and I'd love to shout you out. For real, though, I'd love to hear from you either way. I'm on Twitter, at The Art of Charm, and it's a great way to engage with the show. Also, we've got our AOC challenge. Text AOC, that's AOC, to 38470, that's 38470, in the States or anywhere else. Just go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. We'll take you step-by-step, becoming better at making personal and professional connections, becoming a better networker, increasing your social capital, your charisma. It's for both guys and gals. Check that out. Text AOC to 38470 or go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. More from AOC at theartofcharm.com, including info on our live residential boot camps that we run every single week here in L.A., If you really want to dig into this stuff and work on your AOC skills with us as your coaches, that's theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp, and we do accept cryptocurrency these days. Now stay charming, get out there, and connect, and leave everyone better than you found them. 